Though there were many precursor examples, the first example of what we today might recognize as a television, a cathode ray tube, or CRT-based device that displayed a picture from a video signal, was built in 1907 by a Russian scientist named Boris Rosing. The first fully electric television demonstration occurred a few decades later in 1928. Philo Farnsworth transmitted an image of his wife, Elma, as a group of journalists watched, and the world became aware of this new technological capability, the core of which had been honed and refined and iterated by dozens of scientists from around the world in the preceding years. Another six years after that, in 1934, Farnsworth gave another demonstration of an all-electric television system that displayed moving images from a live camera rather than a still image like last time. Again, though, in the years between these demonstrations, numerous scientists and researchers and inventors made iterative adjustments to the technologies involved and broke new ground, some isolated from these public events and some accidentally stumbling over Farnsworth's patents as they moved along which at times stifled their efforts and blocked them from further progression. And in a few cases, it resulted in deals and eventual payouts to use those patented technologies, while Farnsworth benefited monetarily. In 1937, a TV set using a type of camera tube called the Super Emitron displayed the results of an outdoor broadcast for the first time ever, which was recorded by the BBC. In this broadcast, the King of England laid a wreath to honor the dead of World War I on Armistice Day. Now, around that time in the late 1930s, some families in the U.S. already had TVs, but they were of a very wide variety of makes and models and sizes and specifications, which made producing programming for them, or even using them, in some cases, in your home, a little bit tricky. In 1941, the electronics company RCA agreed to pay Farnsworth and his company, Farnsworth Television and Radio Corporation, royalties to use their patents, which enabled TV makers to agree to standards for their devices, since they were now almost all working from the same set of technologies. These deals resulted in a consistent 525-line television in North America, which is a measure of the resolution. Today, we typically use pixels, which are dots of light to measure resolution, but back then, it was horizontal lines that determined how clear the picture on a screen was. So a 525-line television contained 525 lines of light, and having more lines was better, because then the image would be crisper. I'll link in the show notes to some images of what this actually looked like, because it's a little bit hard to imagine if you've never seen this type of screen before. It wasn't great. It wasn't even near good by today's standards. It was impressive at the time, of course, but the technology was rudimentary at best compared to today's age of paper-thin screens and light-wave-based augmented reality. The technology has come a very, very long way in a relatively short period of time. Now from there, new iteration took place, 
The Soviet Union implemented a 625-line standard to compete with the U.S.'s 525-line standard, and Europe ended up adopting Russia's higher standard. Then along came color CRT-based TV sets, which led to broadcast networks changing their transmission signals so they could utilize this new color data that the consumer hardware could suddenly unscramble and display as images. Color TV sales surpassed those of black and white televisions in 1972 in the United States, and that same year the last holdout black and white only daytime television network changed over to color transmission. Interestingly, the principles for building a plasma TV display were developed in 1936, though it would be many decades before the first practical example would be built. The first flat panel LCD, or liquid crystal display television, was prototyped and demonstrated in 1978. The first 3D TV, which used what's called stereoscopy to fake three-dimensionality in a two-dimensional space, like, for instance, on a television screen, was demonstrated back in 1928, though the technology used back then was a far cry from the digital 3D TVs that were released by many electronics brands in the early 2000s. Some of these newer 3D TVs didn't even require users to wear glasses to see the effect, either tracking their eyes to determine which pixels to show where, or more commonly, using what's called lenticular lenses, parallax barriers, or volumetric displays to create a screen that would show one set of images to one eye and another set of images to the other eye, so long as you sat in the right general viewing area which then would create a three-dimensional effect. Now, unlike color broadcast signals and the digital television signals that came not long after that, which in turn defined the modern television experience for much of the world from the 1980s onward, 3D TV watching never really caught on. From 2010 until around 2013, maker after maker began dropping these sets from their catalog. And the last holdouts including the electronics giant Samsung, stopped making them completely in 2016. And by then, the feature was largely relegated to being an added bonus rather than a main selling point. The technology site CNET expresses 3D TV's current situation fairly well in a series of articles that they have run on the topic over the past several years, colorfully saying in 2016 that, quote, with a bullet to the head from Samsung, 3D TV is now deader than ever, end quote. Followed by another headline in 2017 saying, quote, shambling corpse of 3D TV finally falls down dead, end quote. Now that said, it is worth noting that CNET and sites like it have been running similar headlines since around 2013, and you can even find some from back in 2011 if you look around. But the overarching narrative seems to be that 3D is a technology in televisions that is either dead or doomed to be integrated in a non-value-adding way. Maybe future devices will be capable of displaying 3D movies just as a latent function in the same way that modern television sets can all display color, but it probably won't be what convinces people to buy one device over another. What I want to talk about today is another movement that's happening within the world of television, and especially in the world of television experience amplifying and augmenting devices. Today, I'd like to talk about Kodi, 
and specifically illegal fully loaded Kodi devices. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. So if you're anything like me, the name Cody, K-O-D-I, may not have meant anything to you until recently, and it still might not, up until this moment in time. But it caught my attention recently because of a flurry of articles that have been published about this software and a particular use case that that software is being used for that has been the center of much attention over the past several months. And the article that I want to start with today is about this Kodi software. It's from Ars Technica, and it's entitled, Kodi, Open Source TV App Inspires Full-Blown Copyright Panic in the UK. So, first and foremost, what is this Kodi software? Kodi is the modern iteration of what started out its life as the Xbox Media Center, an open-source media player app developed for the first Xbox by a trio of programmers in 2003. There was an earlier version the previous year, in 2002, which allowed the original Xbox gaming console to display images and play movie files, but the Xbox Media Center software that came after that was developed to serve as more of an omni-platform, allowing users to more easily install the software, though it still required that you mod the hardware, that you modify it, that you install a little mod chip to make it work. But once you did that, with that second version of the software in 2003, you could not only display movies and photos, but also play music and stream media between multiple devices and perform all kinds of other fun and interesting tech wizardry. I actually remember, once I learned about this, I remembered visiting a friend way back in the day who had one of these on his original Xbox. And he'd used it at the time to install a slew of old gaming system emulators on his device. So not only could he play and store ripped DVD movies on his Xbox, he also had a library of every Nintendo and Super Nintendo game ever published right there, available to play on that same system. Now today, that same project is called Kodi, and XBMC, the acronym for Xbox Media Center, Foundation, is the name of the nonprofit that manages Kodi. And everything seems to be relatively above board with this foundation, and they tend to play well within the open source movement, but also within the law to the best of their ability, which I will get more into in a second. In 2009, the last version of this software was made for the Xbox, because at that point, the whole XBMC Foundation team was pretty full up on work for other platforms, especially Linux and Mac and Windows. And in the years since, they've expanded their reach so that the Kodi software can run on pretty much anything you can think of. It runs on both iOS and Android phones, on TVs, on streaming devices like the Roku and Amazon Fire Stick, and even on simple, relatively simple, hardware like the Raspberry Pi which is a complete computer on a chip that is super cheap. And some of the versions of this are so cheap that they've been given away for free with print magazines. And so this software is pretty versatile in that it can even run on something that simple and inexpensive. 
The issue addressed in this Ars Technica article is something that has hit a fever pitch recently, which is the building and selling of custom, fully stocked and augmented Kodi-based streaming hardware. The Kodi software, in addition to what it does as soon as you install it right out of the box, things like being able to organize and process essentially any type of media file, connecting them all to multiple devices and making them easily accessible via what they call a 10-foot UI, which means a user interface that you can view and use from 10 feet away, which is convenient for use on a TV screen. In addition to that, it also has a rich library of add-ons that you can use to change the interface. So there are skins that allow you to change the look and the layout. There are what amount to apps, kind of like apps for your phone, that allow you to add brand new functionality to the software. And some of these add-ons will look familiar to anyone who has any kind of modern media device. There are YouTube and podcasting add-ons and media libraries that allow you to search your collection of movies by a particular actor instead of just the name of the movie. There are add-ons that pull information about your media from the web. So maybe you get an app that adds closed captioning to your movies, even if you don't have closed captioning on the original movie file. Maybe you get an add-on that displays which actors are on screen in a particular scene as you are watching a movie. But there are other add-ons that tack on a very different sort of functionality. They allow users to easily find and stream pirated TV shows and films through that very same interface that they use for everything else. And then there are other add-ons that take things a step further, allowing Kodi users to stream live television, including things that you would usually pay for, like premium television and live events like paid sporting events and locked channels. And they can do it all right from that very same media interface that they're using for everything else. So what these fully stocked Kodi-based media devices are, are really just streaming sticks, like Amazon Fire Sticks. But more often they are cheap Chinese knockoffs that work essentially the same way, but which are also much cheaper. And they come with Kodi pre-installed, along with a bunch of skins, and both legal and illegal add-ons that are pre-downloaded to this same device, to that version of Kodi. And I hadn't really noticed quite how prevalent these fully loaded Kodi devices are until I started researching the topic for this episode. And I looked at the local Craigslist and Facebook marketplace postings here in Wichita, where I'm recording this episode, and I found a half dozen different sellers of these things without even having to search for them specifically. They are just that common. They are all over the place. And this has become an even bigger issue in larger markets than Wichita. This article from Ars Technica and many others that I've been reading of late have used London in particular as a case study, in part because football, what we would call soccer here in the U.S., is such a big deal there and can be quite expensive to watch at home, and in part because the British government has been rumbling about passing a law that would make Kodi streaming devices illegal. And just a few days before I recorded this episode, they moved to do just that. The Digital Economy Act has a lot of different components. It's a fairly substantial legal shift for a lot of different things. But thankfully, the website Engadget put together a pretty solid explainer on the topic, which is entitled, How the Digital Economy Act Will Come Between You and Porn. It is rumored 
that this act was pushed through the British legal process faster than would have been ideal because of an upcoming snap election that the UK is having in early June 2017, which is seen by many as an attempt by current Prime Minister of the UK, Theresa May, to acquire more legitimacy than she currently has before the main negotiations of the UK leaving the EU begin. Why she lacks that legitimacy in the eyes of many British and EU leaders is a much bigger story, but the short version is that she picked up the hot potato when former Prime Minister David Cameron stepped down following the narrow victory of the pro-Brexit camp in the Brexit vote in 2016. A surprisingly large number of people declined to take up the Prime Minister mantle after that, or even try for it, because the next step in British history seemed, and still seems to many, like it would be more than a little awkward and uncomfortable, and no one wanted to rig their political sloop to what seemed like it might be a sinking ship. So as a result of all those other leaders who had been banging the drum for the Brexit, slinking away into the shadows after they, some would say, accidentally succeeded at getting the Brexit to happen, Theresa May found herself as the head of the Conservative Party and the head of the nation. And because she did not go through the typical process to get the power that she has, it is assumed that she called for this vote so that she could gain at least some semblance of legitimacy in the eyes of more people before these tough negotiations arrive. So that context in mind, the Digital Economy Act was one of several acts that were pushed through quickly to essentially get it out of the way, and the harried nature of its passing is fairly evident in some of the incomplete and unclear portions of this act. Some components of this act make sense, based on what's been happening in the UK in terms of the slow growth of surveillance and what some would call the nanny state tendencies of the government over the past decade or so. The title of that Engadget explainer refers to one such portion of this act, which will enforce mandatory age checks on pornographic websites, which would fine the sites which fail to age check everyone who visits the website, and that fine would be £250,000, or 5% of their total net worth. And the act allows the government to even go so far as to force their internet service provider to close down the website, or go directly to ad providers like Google to garnish the site's wages if they fail to pay up voluntarily. Which is all well and good to say, except that they don't actually know how they will enforce this age restriction on these websites. They don't know how they'll check an internet browser's age without somehow invading their privacy. And that is something that, as you might imagine, is particularly important with this type of content. There have been mumblings in the background about maybe using credit card information or voting information or cell phone plan information to achieve this. But all of these options have been presented and then fairly swiftly discounted as they all seem to be pretty invasive. After all, who wants their porn browsing habits attached to their official voting records? There are some more popular aspects of this act, including the portion that essentially makes access to 10 megabyte per second broadband internet a right for all British citizens, meaning that anyone who requests access at that speed, even someone living in the most remote cottage in the middle of nowhere in the countryside, 
must legally be granted access to internet at those speeds, even if completely new infrastructure that's very expensive must be built in order to accomplish this. The citizen would still have to pay to use that service, but this act says that access should be available no matter what. Now that, to me, is pretty good. It's not great, and it's worth noting here that they are actually considering making the minimum 30 megabytes per second, which would have been well above average by international standards. But although it's not great, it is something. And as someone who has lived in the middle of nowhere and suffered through speeds that were a mere fraction as fast as 10 megabytes per second, I guarantee that this will change some people's lives for the better. The difference between internet access that flies and internet access that crawls in the modern world is the difference between understanding and partaking in modern communication and not understanding what all the fuss is about because it's never worked for you. But this only matters if this part of that act is implemented. And again, like the age restriction on porn thing, this is a part of the act that they included without actually knowing how they will make it happen. There are very few legal provisions or guides as to how or when this will come into effect and what it will look like when it's done. This part of the act, I think, is an overall good idea, but at the moment, it's little more than vaporware, which is to say that it is a cool thing that has been promised, but which may or may not ever come to market. Another facet of the Digital Economy Act is a series of rules that aim to punish pirates for all kinds of things. The usual suspects are on the chopping block, including individuals who seed torrents of new movies and TV shows, ripping off the shows and movies and making them available to huge audiences for free, but also specifically called out amongst all the other supposed digital criminal elements are those individuals who are selling fully loaded Kodi devices, which is hardware that has the free open-sourced Kodi software installed on it, but which is also sold with an array of pre-installed add-ons that allow this device to do illegal things, like, for example, stream soccer matches and newly released movies, completely free of charge. It should be noted that the people behind Kodi are not pleased with this development, not because they're trying to promote criminality, they're actually trying to encourage their users to not use their software for illegal things. They've repeatedly published warnings to their audience to avoid doing such things with instructions on what to avoid, and have even gone after purveyors of these fully loaded Kodi devices, calling them out for trademark infringement because they don't want people using their name to sell illegal stuff. They genuinely seem to want to produce a high-quality free piece of software that people can hack and do all kinds of impressive legal things with, but they also want to make sure that they can keep doing this. And that means doing what they can within certain limits to ensure that the law allows them to keep operating. Those limits, though, stop at crippling their software. They're not going to do that in order to stay on good terms with the government. They have, however, taken the somewhat extraordinary step of removing all illegal add-ons and users of these add-ons and purveyors of these add-ons from their official forums and websites. So you're not going to find add-ons that allow you to watch that upcoming Manchester United match for free via Cody's official webpage. But these add-ons are still available elsewhere, and with a little googling, it's not difficult to find these extra pieces that add a ridiculous amount of functionality to the foundational media center application. And there doesn't seem to be any way for the Cody people 
to prevent this, short of crippling their software completely and turning it into something with far less functionality and hackability, which is not something that they are likely to do. But honestly, even if they did that, succumbing to pressure from governments and traditional players in the media space and placing really hardcore limitations on how people can use their app and limiting its extendability, many new versions of the software especially the versions that go on these illegal devices, are not the vanilla version of Kodi. They are forked versions of the software, meaning that someone has taken the core code and made edits to it, something that anyone can do with open source software. That's what makes it open. People can take it and edit it and manipulate it however they please. And in some cases, those additions and changes are valuable enough that they're added back into the core software. It's crowdsourced development. That's what makes it so strong and so interesting and so flexible. Unfortunately for Cody, though, all of these changes, legal and illegal, are being tied back to their name, which in turn has resulted in their being targeted for all of the infringement that is occurring, even if they are arguably not directly involved in any of it. In a past episode... I talked a little bit about my bias when it comes to the topic of digital piracy and spoke a bit about how I grew up in the Napster generation, which has absolutely influenced my opinion on these types of things. When I was coming of age, when I was a teenager in high school, music, if you wanted it, was essentially free. You could find whatever you wanted through peer-to-peer networks like Napster and later a million different spinoffs of Napster. And that unlimited access really shaped the way a lot of people, myself included, viewed not just music, but any media that could be digitized. Today, the issue has become a bit more complicated because of modern technology and what we've learned from those early days of piracy. I still love that we can transmit valuable things for essentially zero cost, but I also recognize that if no money changes hands, there's a little chance that the creators of things like music and movies will be able to continue to make such things. They won't be able to eat or pay the rent, so they'll have to get jobs doing other things that do pay. There are still cases where I will find a torrent for something, but generally it's in circumstances where I can't find a legal version of what I'm trying to check out. I use Netflix here in the States, for instance. I'm a subscriber to Netflix, but when I'm overseas and I can't watch something that I am paying to have access to because I happen to be in another country, It troubles me not one iota to find a technically illegal version of it to watch. Now, this is especially true since Netflix started banning VPNs, meaning that you cannot even pretend that you are in the US when you're traveling overseas when trying to use the Netflix service anymore. And as a result, you can't access that which you have paid to access because of where you happen to be located right at that moment. Now, that said, I am guessing that given their druthers, a lot of these companies would not operate in this way. I cannot read the minds of those on Netflix's board of directors, but almost certainly, at least some of them realize how ridiculous some of these limitations are, at least from the consumer standpoint. But because of the nature of the business, and because of who gets paid and how, these restrictions are necessary for their business model. And this is the world that we live in. Anything can be pirated, pretty much, and that's not going to stop. And in all likelihood, it will only become more pronounced, especially as things like 3D printing technologies become more mainstream and the specifications for physical products become piratable, allowing anyone with the right torrent and an at-home printer 
to make their own new pair of Nikes or even hardware components just by downloading a file. Maybe the very devices that people are installing Kodi on will be the next things that get pirated. The question of whether these devices should be illegal, though, is a tricky one. Like any tool, these devices can be used in very helpful and legal ways, or in very helpful and illegal ways. Any blanket crackdown on tools of this kind cannot help but hurt many users and hurt the groups creating these tools, who again seem to be doing their best to keep people from using their work for blatantly illegal purposes. That's an argument, though, that often falls on deaf ears for politicians who have a lot of moneyed media interests to answer to. And frankly, even if the producer of these tools have the best of intentions, the consequences of putting such a thing on the market even if it is the open source market and therefore free, are helping more people than ever access this media illegally. So yeah, it sucks for the XBMC that their legal actions are being overshadowed by their illegal actions, or other people's illegal actions in their name, but their work arguably has still created a massive door in the premium wall that these companies rely on to make money for their intellectual property. And an increasing number of people are walking right through that door. If we're going to continue to use existing monetization models, at least, it's probably prudent to do something about this. As much of a bummer as that might be for consumers who really just want to get their hands on this content with the least amount of friction and without paying astronomical prices. Now that, of course, is assuming that we do plan to stick with the current media system as it operates today and the business model that underpins it. And I don't think that that's a given. I don't think that it's ideal, probably. What strikes me about how a lot of these media business structures are currently set up is that most of the restrictions seem to exist in order to preserve the existence of the middleman, to ensure that the platforms and businesses and systems between the creator and the consumer continue to exist, even past the point, perhaps, where such middlemen are actually necessary. Now, this is not to say that piracy doesn't hurt creators. It does. As someone who writes books for a living, I can tell you that it is a real bummer knowing that you're potentially losing money each month because of that piracy. Money that you need to live to continue to produce the work some people are consuming without compensating you for. But I also recognize that this is the world that we live in, and there are means of making it work despite that potential downside. I have written a message to pirates on the copyright page of all of my books, which first thanks the people who decided to buy the book and support my work in that way, but also tells folks who got it for free that they could still help support my efforts if they enjoy what they read by telling other people about me and my work, or maybe in the future buying some other book of mine when they have the means to do so. This isn't a method that would work for everyone, but the point is that I believe we'll need to figure out ways to operate and thrive within this reality if we're going to figure out how to benefit from these amazing technologies that we have while still allowing people who make things to, you know, pay the rent and eat as a result of all that work. We can continue to try to slow down the clock and stifle the emergence of new tools, but historically that seldom works. And even when it does, it doesn't work forever. It's a losing battle to build taller and taller walls between creators and consumers to maintain the status quo, because we live in a world in which walls are permeable, 
people can ghost their way right through them. We are going to need new mechanisms of compensation for creators that work for the consumers. And part of why the middlemen are currently scrambling is that there isn't necessarily any room for them in these potential new systems, or at least not the amount of space and power that they are accustomed to that matches their currently massive economic and influence footprint. There was a company called Aereo, A-E-R-E-O, that was founded in 2012 before it was ruthlessly squelched in 2014. The squelchers, in this case, were television broadcasters because the Aereo was a product, a tiny antenna attached to a DVR, that was stored in a warehouse. So it was essentially a remotely located TiVo that would record live television through that tiny antenna and then make it available for playback, either live or recorded, via a user's device that could remotely connect to that DVR. So you could sign up for the service and watch live TV from your phone or tablet or computer, and that broadcast would be transmitted to you via the internet. But the stream would originate from a warehouse where this antenna-DVR combo pulled the original broadcast from the air, just like any old TV with an antenna might do. I bring up Aereo, not because it was necessarily a great service. The reviews were good, but who knows how it would have competed against current offerings. I bring it up because it was crushed by existing gatekeepers. Offerings of this kind are very often strangled in their crib by big existing players. And that this is the case says something about who wields the power, according to our current broadcast infrastructure. Just as is the case within many other industries, those with clout and power and the middleman position between consumers and creators in the broadcast and media world often do their best to either kill or take over these new potential future threats before they can become actual concrete threats. Before any cracks can show up in those walls that they have built between the creators of things and the consumers of things, these middlemen quash the newbies who could someday threaten them and make those cracks occur or expand cracks that are already there. But this state of affairs and the position of the current media ruling class, at least, may not be long for this world. And not just because of pirates in the areas of the world. There is a bigger shift afoot. Netflix certainly changed things in this space quite dramatically. First by introducing what amounted to a wholly new business model, then by combining that model with something similar to what has worked for the traditional broadcasters, namely making their own exclusive content, but leveraging their immense influence and arguably superior technology to make it work better and to create new habits in their audience as a result, habits that they are uniquely qualified to fulfill. Amazon Prime is very Netflix-like, though it has its own respective advantages and disadvantages because of its parent company's other activities. And Hulu is similar, though they're going in a slightly different direction, in part because of who owns them, namely Disney, 21st Century Fox, Comcast, and Time Warner, all of whom are traditional broadcasters. Apple has been trying their hand in this space as well with their Apple TV platform, and is also reportedly investigating a live TV offering, similar to something that Hulu recently announced that they would be doing, essentially packing up existing broadcast content for consumption on new gadgets on demand. And all of these players in what we can loosely call 
the on-demand media space, make sense as disruptors when it comes to the traditional broadcast guard. But even Netflix and their kin may themselves be on the verge of disruption soon, as social media platform contenders are entering the broadcasting ring. And though some of these entities have dabbled with video and even TV-like services previously, none of them have really committed to the concept until just recently. Snapchat, for instance, is introducing platform-specific content, short-form, very visual offerings that will be three to five minutes long, and with more actual TV-like content and fewer previews and trailers, as has typically been the case in the past. And Twitter is doing the same in a way, but instead of doing quick three to five minute serialized shows, they will be doing a 24-7 news program. And they've already introduced an always-on video player on their user interface. And now they have partnered with Bloomberg to produce an original always-on news network, much like CNN, but based right there in your Twitter app. Facebook has been attempting to do something similar to these other two networks, though their efforts have been consistently quite a bit more scattered. They've tried out essentially every permutation that every network has tried over the past five years, and nothing has fully coalesced or done terribly well quite yet. But that said, if it does figure out something that is a good fit for their network, chances are it will get very big very fast and drink everyone else's milkshake because of the scale of their network and how much activity it enjoys each day. Combine these upcoming social network-based programs with the current, already successful on-demand platforms like Netflix, and you can see why traditional broadcasters might be disconcerted and might even feel inclined to lash out a bit more enthusiastically than usual at anything that seems like it might pile on, adding to their existential issues. But this is a natural progression. For a long time, the technology necessary to produce and broadcast things was out of reach. Today, we all have that technology in our pockets. And for the moment, TV stations are still the realm of big companies, and some corners of the internet could actually turn into the same if net neutrality rules are gutted. I spoke a bit more about why that would suck in a past episode, but essentially... Getting rid of net neutrality would create a better, faster portion of the internet for those who can pay for it, rather than offering a relatively even playing field for everyone like we have now. And that would sway the contest in favor of the incumbents here. And it's worth noting that already there are biases built into portions of the internet. If you look at the algorithms used by many social platforms, even though they are technically open and available for all of us to use, if CNN were to choose to broadcast on Facebook alongside all the rest of us unmoneyed peasants, they would have a natural advantage over us because the algorithms would favor them and their content. Similarly, only paying advertisers can have channels on Snapchat, and celebrities and existing networks are promoted over the average Twitterer on Twitter. Their system and all of these other social network systems are more favorable than something like cable TV broadcasting but it is still very much rigged in favor of the big guy, the incumbents in these spaces. And that actually makes sense, in a way, really, because these incumbent efforts bolster the business model that has always made these types of systems tick. You need big, well-produced entries in these spaces, with well-known faces and names, or the paucity of prominence could doom the platform in question into 
obscurity. And they also need those ad dollars and the corporate bot revenue streams where they would lack the ability to pay for the server space for the rest of us to be able to tweet and post for free. That is how their existing business model works. But it's an interesting thought experiment to wonder what method of delivery of all possible methods, both those that have been tried and those that have only been theorized, would be most ideal for both creators and consumers. And note that I did not include in there ideal for platforms or distributors. I do think that middlemen very probably have a role to play for a very long time into the future. But something that I keep coming back to is that when you look at things like microtransactions and all the other systems that allow you to easily and casually pay creators for their work directly, you could end up with a model that can more seamlessly connect consumers with creators without needing to have any middleman present at all. And we have enough options, enough small technologies like this that we could utilize and expand upon, that it almost seems unlikely that something would not bloom out of these technologies and usurp the current infrastructure that we have today at some point in the potentially near future. And that might not be such a bad thing. It often seems to be the middlemen who are most likely to mess with the channels between creators and consumers, which is to say that their original intended purpose might be to bridge the gap between these two parties to connect the consumer and the creator. But in a lot of cases, they do eventually evolve into entities that increase the gap between these two groups. Because if they do not have that gap, if that gap ceases to exist, they wouldn't have any reason to exist. There's no need for middlemen, or at least far less need for them, in a world in which the creators and consumers can connect directly. And consequently, the work that is being created can thus be funded with less time and expense, with less bloat in the overall transaction. So that's the theory of how things could potentially maybe work if we were to adopt something like the ability to send and receive microtransactions within the browsers and apps that we use every day to access content. Now this is a concept, by the way, that the creators of the web were originally thinking of building into the infrastructure of the browser system that we take for granted today, but they decided against it, and probably with good reason. It is thought that if microtransactions had been there from the very beginning, the internet that we know and love, an internet in which things are largely free to access, may never have come into being. Create any kind of friction, even something that costs just a few cents to access, and you immediately put up a barrier between that content and someone who might gleefully access it if it were free. The creators of the web made their choice in this matter, and the result seems to have been overall positive. But I can't help but wonder if the system is now mature enough to handle having such a thing, having such an economic system baked into the underlying structure, something that would allow you to just very easily and conveniently send and receive as much money as makes sense, even if it's just a few pennies, to help support and be supported for the work that you create and consume on the internet. There are already a whole lot of payment processors that do something like this, but they all require separate signups and attached bank accounts and all have several other hurdles that are either tedious to set up or inaccessible to a large portion of the online audience because of where they live or their level of technological sophistication. And there's also that fragmenting where there's so many different systems that none of them connect to each other. 
and the likelihood that any group of people will all be on the same service is negligible. But if you were to build a microtransaction system at the ground level in the actual browser, in something that plugs into every app that you use, so that there's nothing else you have to install and there's no gimmickry that you have to learn to use it, and perhaps you could even make aspects of it passive so that you automatically contribute a few cents or dollars every time you visit a particular website, if you could do that successfully, you would have created a new type of economy that could very well scale in such a way that would leave the middlemen completely out of the picture. They would be elbowed out and unnecessary. For the time being, though, and perhaps even within a system like the one I just outlined, these middlemen do still have a valuable role to play. Middlemen like Amazon, for instance, have allowed me to reach different audiences than I might have ever reached myself through my blog and through my social media presence. Distributing my work through their platform, I do pay a percentage of every sale to them, but they help me make new connections, expose my work to new people. Some friends of mine recently teamed up to produce a great documentary, which is called Minimalism, by the way. If you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. And this documentary would have already reached their substantial audience, no matter what, because that is an audience that they attracted and maintained all by themselves. They could have reached them without any middlemen necessary. But the film was able to reach a much larger audience than that because of Netflix, a middleman service, but one that brought them many new connections because of how their algorithms work, how they recommend work from unfamiliar creators to consumers who wouldn't otherwise have had any reason to ever be exposed to it. So not only can middlemen serve as valuable distribution channels, it can also serve as a tastemaker and a recommender of things. Netflix has algorithms that do this, so does Amazon and Facebook, and essentially every other major player in this space. Not only do they make a library of content available in a common space where people know to look, rather than leaving everything scattered around the internet, they also filter through that content to serve up things that they think you will like. Which, let's be honest, is both negative and positive. I mean, it's great when these algorithms favor our work, and when our work plays well with the metrics, maybe selling a certain number of copies to a certain demographic, which then leads that algorithm to make more recommendations to larger audiences over time. But the flip side of that effect is that some work is pushed to the bottom, overshadowed by creations that play better with the algorithms, which then creates in the minds of many people People for whom those libraries are the only known purveyors of content, the only place that they know to check, to find a new movie, or to find new books. They come to believe that all that they see is all that there is. And as a consequence, a lot of these consumers will maybe be less likely to go find the independent stuff, the independent people who are producing and releasing their own documentaries, and who are producing and releasing their own books and not going through these platforms or who go through these platforms and lack their support, are not getting on good terms with the algorithms, and as a result, are being pushed down to the bottom. Their work becomes lost in the overall noise of the internet's common non-algorithm-filtered spaces, and consequently they become kind of a non-entity. In a lot of ways, it's kind of the bookstore problem, rebuilt in the digital world. In bookstores, there's only so much shelf space. And within that shelf space, the books with their covers faced out sell 
far better than those which only present their spines. The promise of the online world was that you could go searching for anything. Author, title, subject, keyword, broad category. And you'd stand a good chance of finding what you're looking for. And not just whatever the media purveyor decides to face outward on their shelf that day. What seems to be happening instead is that these purveyors are rebuilding that same system, but using algorithms instead of booksellers, bookstore employees, to decide which covers will face outward on a particular day. The issue is that although the available space for content is essentially infinite, people's time and attention is not. And if Netflix can show you stuff that you're more likely to enjoy based on what it knows about you, and the algorithm-based sorting that it can do, then it will do that enthusiastically because a positive experience in this regard makes you more likely to stick around and to keep paying them month after month. And so this is valuable for them. It's also valuable for you, the consumer, but it's also constrictive in a whole lot of ways. So the question becomes, at what point does the value provided by a middleman like Netflix become a burden? When do their bridges between creators and consumers become walls between the same? When do they become filter bubbles of a sort that actually make it more difficult for us to find and experience things beyond what their platforms offer up? It's a very difficult line to draw, I think, and it'll be different for everyone, of course. And it's worth noting that very often, by the time we recognize that one of these middlemen have begun to prioritize perpetuating their own existence over benefiting consumers and creators, they are so entrenched, they're so deeply rooted that they're difficult to dislodge. They own the space that they are in. They are stomping around and killing off all potential competitors before they have the chance to mature and introduce us to something new. And these same questions apply outside of the media space. For example, at what point are politicians and other bureaucratic middlemen doing the exact same thing? When do they cease to be a useful connector, a useful bridge, and become walls? They become middlemen that are just working to continue their own existence at the expense of the people they're supposed to be serving. Now, assuming that there's a potential open source or free non-corporate solution to the problem of connecting consumers and creators, is it possible that we might discover or develop software or systems that would allow us to organize and optimally distribute and disseminate and share information of all kinds, including things that are currently handled by governments? Might we be able to implement such connections, such systems, and in turn lower the overall weight and cost of government while ensuring more people have what they need, namely a high level of basic resources and fundamental and accessible infrastructure? Could things like power grids be managed in this way? What about less tangible things like democratic processes themselves? How might these types of systems be implemented? And would they manifest like Cody, where those who are entrenched currently, the middlemen, try to kill it while it's in its embryonic form? I have no idea, frankly. It's very hard to say if things like this could be implemented in the first place. And if they were, whether that would lead to a utopia or a dystopia, or things would remain very much the same. But it does seem like if we are able to replace a lot of these middlemen, if you look at our value system, 
if you look at how we perceive work and status and a million other things, economics, everything seems to be predicated to a very large degree on the middlemen systems that we have set up, on the bureaucracy that we have set up. And so if any change was made to that, that alleviated the need for some of these systems, I think that we would have a very deep societal soul-searching period to go through to figure out who we are and what we represent. Middlemen certainly are not useless, but the technologies and platforms and systems that we have access to today and could very well have access to tomorrow could connect us much better and far more efficiently and with less signal loss and power seepage than we experience today. This may not be something that will happen immediately in any of these departments, including in the media industry, in the broadcast industry, but it is worth thinking about today what it would mean for those things that we use to replace the current middlemen, what it would mean for those that are being ousted, and what it might mean for those of us who would likely need to do the replacing. Might I suggest House of Sons by Alastair Reynolds? So this is a hard science fiction novel. It's not a series. It is just a novel. Unfortunately, I kind of wish it had gotten longer, but it did end well. So I guess extending it artificially would not have made sense. But like a whole lot of good hard science fiction, the story is good. The characters are good. It's interesting. There's kind of a conflict between artificial intelligence and human intelligence deep into the far future. But to me, a lot of the interesting stuff in these books takes place in the everyday situations and what the universe that they live in looks like. And in this particular universe, they are living in a galaxy in which a long time ago, wealthy individuals began to shatter themselves, they called it. Essentially, they would clone themselves and create a thousand clones of themselves and then send that clone army out into the galaxy to travel around for great durations. And they would make a circuit of the galaxy and engage in all kinds of acquisitions and investment opportunities and combat in some cases. And then at the end of a few hundred thousand years in real time, they would come back together and compile all their memories so that they created a line of memories that were experienced by kind of the same person, the same genetic heritage at least. And in doing so, they created these sort of meta-civilizations that were always traveling, so they did not exist inside of any human civilization, but they were connected because they were all of the same genetic heritage. And so what happens as a result of the existence of these clone families that are traveling around and occupying a different time, essentially, from all of the civilizations that they encounter is very interesting. But it's also very interesting then when these families come into conflict with each other and what those conflicts end up looking like, and what happens when they encounter something like, say, artificial intelligence that changes the habits that they've established over the course of millions of years. So it's an interesting take on immortality and cloning and genetics and AI and a whole lot of politics. The book is called House of Sons by Alistair Reynolds. You can pick it up on your Kindle, on your Kobo, grab it at your local library or local indie bookstore. If you want to find out more about me and my work, you can go to colin.io, where, among other things, you'll find a complete list of the books that I have written. 
You can find my blog at xlifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere except Facebook where I'm just Colin Wright. And thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.